Tonight we're beginning what uh, I, uh, I will be uh, a series of a few nights. I don't really know how many. We're going to take a little stutter step next week because Brother Daryl Turner is going to be here Sunday night to teach, and I'm looking forward to sitting under his teaching. I'm so thankful that the Lord continues to bring people uh, who have the gift of teaching, and I can every now and then just kind of sit and learn. I need that too. Um, so, but this will go an, an undetermined number of nights until we get through the material. I've already been accosted by a few of you trying to figure out how long we're going to be here tonight because you've seen all the notes. Uh, hopefully we can make it through at least the first uh, four pages, uh, but we'll see if we can slip into the next section as well. Um, so I want to, at the beginning, just acknowledge a few challenges with, um, with doing a study like this. The first is the, the breadth, where to stop. I mean, I started kind of working on this as an idea like a year and a half ago, and honestly, it's like stuff comes up and I, I don't really know where to put everything. I don't know how to organize it in a way that makes sense. Uh, and so there's just so much to do. At some point, I just kind of had to say, we just need to stop and do the best I can with, with what I've got. I've got a few of the resources back here that I've consulted. Um, some of these are in our church library, I borrowed from there. Some of them are mine, but all of them are available to you if you're interested in any of them. Uh, more of like mini books like this uh, on to super high-level stuff. Um, this is probably the most recent one that I would commend to you. Carl Truman wrote Strange New World a couple of years after he wrote his big book, uh, which is... Uh, 400 some pages, about 400 pages, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And this is really kind of a, a ground-shaking book in uh, the evangelical world. But he condensed it, and uh, there's a study guide to go with the, the abbreviated version. I would commend to you, it's, it's written on a level that's very accessible. Um, but uh, it's, it's very broad, so the breadth is the first challenge. The second challenge that I'm facing is the, the underpinnings. What we're going to be doing tonight and probably even the next night is just trying to go over some philosophy about why the ideas that make sense in our culture have come to make sense. What underpinnings, what things have, has our culture believed to get us to the place where certain things make sense now that, quite frankly, didn't make sense just a few years ago? Um, Carl Truman talks about that. In, in his book when he's talking about identity. Um, so that's, that's the second thing. The third challenge is this, uh, tone and responsibility. So I, I feel a responsibility to talk about these issues, but I also feel a responsibility to talk about them in a tone that is appropriate. Uh, you know, growing up, whenever uh, I heard some of these topics related to sexuality, Addressed, uh, quite frankly, they were they, they were often addressed in a way that I sure hope that nobody in the room was struggling with any of them because they would have felt incredibly um, put off and probably um, uh, not loved. And so, a couple of ditches, uh, we can be so afraid to come off wrong that we say nothing, and that's that's not faithful. Uh, we can also be just so angry at the world and the culture is going to hell in a handbasket that we can come across unlovingly and, and convince ourselves that, hey, at least I've said the truth even though I said it unlovingly. And so neither of those two ditches are good. 
Um, so having just kind of addressed those few challenges, I want to read a few passages of Scripture that I've put on the top of your notes that I hope will help us begin to answer why Christians should care. Why Christians should care. Here's the first passage, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's this idea, there's this notion that was apparently very clear to Paul in the Bible, is that we have two choices. We can either be transformed by the work that God intends to do in our minds, or we can be conformed and pressed into the mold of the world. Colossians 2.8, there's another warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I'll talk about this in a few moments, but I don't know if you've noticed, it seems like whenever someone goes off to college and leaves Christianity, they never go off to college and leave Christianity for another religion. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, oh man, we lost him to Buddhism. Nobody says that. We lose young people to philosophy and empty deceit. And it's because we have not sufficiently equipped. We've not equipped the next generation. And, uh, and so anyway, me doing this uh, is, is my attempt to at least put it on record. And hopefully those who are not here can, can catch it on the podcast uh, later. But, um, you know, God bless us evangelicals. We're deeply emotional uh, and and we, we need to shore up our thinking a little bit. 1 Corinthians 9. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over this except to, to say this down in verse 22. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. We need to understand the gospel deeply. We need to understand the things that the world is believing so that we can take the gospel to them. Like that's uh, the, the motivation behind this. First Chronicles 12. I love this one. You've probably heard me mention it in passing lately. It's talking, in, in different, uh, talking about different tribes here. Of the Benjaminites, the kinsmen of Saul, 3,000 of whom the majority had to, uh, had to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. Of the, Eph- of the Ephraimites, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men in their father's houses. You can tell in each tribe these men are marked by different characteristics. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were expressly named and come and make David king. Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. I just bring that up, not because there's something really deep in 1 Chronicles 12 about what we're talking about, but I just say all this to say each generation, each era has different challenges that they have to face, and and we need to be like the men of Issachar who had understanding of the times so that we can know what to do. Uh, So why should we do this kind of study? 
this is me really trying to justify what we're going to be doing the next, the next uh, few evenings. The first reason why I think we need to do this kind of study is to be able to think theologically ourselves. What I mean is this, we need to be able to approach all of our lives with a theological understanding, with a Bible-informed understanding of life, that the scriptures are the grid through which we view every question that we have to face. We're, we're commanded to do this in Colossians 2.8, that just read above. Philosophies are always at war against the mind, vying for a foothold, uh, seeking to win allegiance to non-gospel ways of thinking. Uh, many of the pitfalls that Christians fall into and the confusion and division that it has brought in churches has arisen from poor theological understanding. We haven't been able to properly apply the wisdom of Scripture to the questions that we have to face, and, uh, and that causes uh, many of our problems. Number two, so that we are guarded from a couple of anti-gospel ditches. Here's the first ditch. The first ditch would be to think of those who are in the sexual revolution as our enemies. The temptation is to withdraw from them. This would be the error on the right. We collapse them into a political block. It's us against them. We treat them as less than image bearers because we don't understand them, or perhaps we know very few of them. We treat them as less than image bearers. That would be the temptation on the right, the temptation to be revulsed by people we don't understand. The temptation on the left would be something different. Thinking of those who are caught up in the sexual revolution is just needing no gospel at all. Right? They're happy. Love equals affirmation, full stop. So we need to be guarded from these two ditches. Number three, this is why we would entertain these questions. Out of a gospel desire for evangelizing our neighbors, people who are included or, or are caught up in the, uh, in the sexual revolution are included in Matthew 18, 20, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 in the Great Commission. They are part of the all peoples, of the Panta Ta Ethne, of the all ethnicities, all the tribes that we are supposed to be taking the gospel to. And we are reminded of the words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. We have to ask, what kind of season are we in right now? And how can we be prepared for this season that we find ourselves in? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So in other words, we have to understand the worldview of those who are outside the four walls of our church in order to be able to engage them with the gospel. One of the things that, I, that I've been hearing people talk about is one of the, you know, the, the great the, the polarizing that we're experiencing in America, that we're, we're so politically polarized. We're polarized in all kinds of different ways, Right? And at the same time, it's perfectly possible to curate your friend group so that you never really have to rub up against somebody that you disagree with. So at the same time, we're completely polarized, and we also hardly ever come into contact with people who are a lot different from us. This is a strange little reality. We have to be able to understand 
the ideas that are gaining traction so that we can understand them. And this is why the sexual revolution, it's a, it's a broad umbrella that I'm, I'm using that term, the sexual revolution, many of its ideas, frighteningly, would make sense to us. We just haven't identified them yet. The sexual revolution presents us with essentially a different gospel. It's a competing gospel. Listen to what it would say. It would say, we we all have ideas of of our little g gospel, but the sexual revolution would have a little g gospel too. It would say, there is brokenness in the world. Things are not as it should be. And that brokenness is, I have desires that don't conform to the norm. That's the brokenness. It has its own good news. Through the acceptance of the culture, I can be free from shame. What would conversion look like in this gospel? Well, by linking my impulses to my identity, I can become my true self. And by becoming my true self, that's like a conversion experience. What about eschatology, which is just our view of the end times? In other words, we, we would have a heaven where all of our temptations to sin will be gone, where one day we will be with Jesus and we won't have to struggle, we won't have to wrestle with bodies that are breaking down or with having desires that are at war with the Spirit of God inside of us. What would be the eschatology or the, the end times view of, of the gospel of the sexual revolution? It would be trust in progress. That ten years from now it would be better than it is now. Just get on the right side of history. Humankind is is emerging from an era of bigotry and hatred, and it's moving toward total acceptance. So trust in the future. And make no mistake about it, the roots of the sexual revolution represent another religion. The problem is not man's fall into sin, as we would say, but it's just lack of fulfillment, lack of affirmation. The Savior. Well, we don't need a sacrificial substitute like Jesus, but we need autonomy and individual liberation from constraint. That's when I'm saved. So there's no longer any more restraints on me. Man is born free and everywhere in chains. The gospel of the sexual revolution goes. The gospel would be not repentance from sin and the resulting forgiveness and freedom of conscience, But it would just be total acceptance and affirmation by the culture. And the eschaton, instead of a heaven, it's heaven-like. It would be a a utopia where reality is totally created, not dictated by God. So, we need to be able to understand the gospel. Number four, this is where the application turns very squarely toward us. So that we can know how to prepare in our church. How to walk Christianly with members of other denominations, to disciple our children, to help them understand the times during an, an era of just unprecedented cultural change. I threw that in there about you know, different denominations, and I, I'm not you know, interested in, in making comments about what's going on afield from my own lane, but basically, just to give you a little small recap history of what's been happening in the United Methodist Church is this. The United Methodist Church has a book of discipline. Okay, that's, that's what they say that they believe and how they will act. Okay. And that book of discipline ha- has stood for a number of years 
uh, more lately in the West, there have been uh, those who do not believe what that book of discipline says about the gospel as it relates to human sexuality, mostly in the United States. And so those have sought to distance themselves from that book of discipline. The problem is the United Methodist Church is a global denomination. You know that there's no such thing as a Southern Baptist Convention church outside of the United States. When we plant churches in Africa, it's its own church. And they can do their thing, they can have their own denomination or association if they want to. But it's not the same way in the United Methodist Church. They're a global denomination. And the interesting thing about the global South, which is just the, the more politically correct term for the third world, we just we're not supposed to use the term third world anymore, it's, it's disparaging. So in the global South, like Africa, Methodism is exploding. And the brand of Methodism that is exploding there is very, very committed to what the scriptures teach. And so four years pass by and they have a vote at their, I can't remember what, their conference meeting or their convention, what would be like our convention. They have this vote to distance themselves from their own book of discipline and it fails very narrowly. So they say, okay, let's try again in four years. They come back and Africa has just grown and grown and grown. And so they have a greater percentage of people who show up to the convention and now the vote fails by even a greater uh, margin. And so what's happening is, is the affluent white Americans who have distanced themselves from the Bible are a little upset that the Africans who are very traditional are hanging on to the teachings of the Bible like we've got to start our own denomination. And so, but they don't start their own denomination. They basically say, we'll keep the denomination. You can start your own if you want to. And so they have this mutual parting of ways, which I understand was actually very amicable uh, for the most part. Uh, but anyway, that's what's going on within the United Methodist Church. Uh, but anyway, so uh, these things are helpful as we seek to do life with those around us. Um, not to address these issues that are just so salient so, so big in the culture would be pastoral malpractice. I want to quote from Carl Truman. He wrote uh, those two books I showed you, the big thick one and then the one that's a little more reachable. Um, he, he said this back in 2012, okay? You really do only kid yourselves. You really do kid only yourselves if you think you, that you can be an Orthodox Christian and be at the same time cool enough and hip enough to cut it in the wider world. Frankly, in a couple of years, it will not matter how much urban ink you sport, you sport, that's a reference to tattoos, right? How much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft brews you can name, and how much urban gibberish you can spout, how many art house movies you can find that redeemer figure in, and how much money you can divert from gospel preaching to social justice. Maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. He said that back in 2012. He said, this is how you will be viewed if you continue to hold to biblical sexual ethics. I'll give you a little uh, example. John's got these slides up. I didn't print these out for you, but the first is, is an article from uh, Politico in 2015. This is, all I'm doing here is trying to highlight how quickly the culture has changed. Okay? 2015. No, polygamy isn't the next gay marriage. This came out uh, last week, May 16th, two weeks ago. Interested in polyamory? Check out these places. 
He's talking about cities that are allowing or, or that are enshrining into law rights. And so, uh, anyway, it's just so interesting how, how incredibly, with, with breakneck speed, things have changed in our culture. In 2015, you know, you were like, man, it's a bunch of conspiracy theorists out here saying that the next step is going to be, you know, polygamy or polyamory or anything like that. 2023 is like, hey, by the way, if you need any help finding some cities, here they are. Um, number five. Here's the last one, directed again at us. To be able to address the issues that are within the church, not merely those that we perceive as outside the church. We should remember that all humans are sexually broken, us included. Okay, we have sexual brokenness that we need to take to the cross, just like every other human who lives. And since judgment begins in the house of the Lord, 1 Peter 4, we should be equipped to notice how porneia, which is the Greek word for just all kinds of sexual uh, sin, has infected the life of otherwise heterosexual professing Christians. Here's what I mean. If we are only ever heard to be lobbing stones at those outside the church, but we're unwilling to deal with the sexual brokenness within our own body, our enemies or, or our critics are proven right when they say, you don't really believe in the Bible's teaching on sexuality, you're just homophobic. When we lob stones at gay people, but we're unwilling to have a conversation about cohabitation, we prove our critics right when they say, you don't care about what the Bible says, you're just homophobic. And friends, they might be right if we don't be consistent if we don't be consistent on both sides of the coin. We've largely failed to pass on a robust doctrine of marriage and sex. We largely associate the acceptableness of relationships as long as there's romantic love present, right? As long as there's romantic love, then that's, that's like all it takes for us. It's like it's good, you know? Well, they love each other. Suddenly, marrying an unbeliever is understandable. Cohabitation is understandable. Same-sex marriage is understandable as long as they love one another. Friends, and, and listen, the reason that this makes sense to us is because more than we might like to believe, we have imbibed the culture's idea of, of morality. Here's what our posture, I think, needs to be. It's a Christian posture motivated by genuine love. For the believer, we see our responsibility to respond to the world around us with the wisdom of the Scriptures. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to, uh, not to I think it should be teach, I'm sorry, that's a typo there. I guess I was typing this instead of copying and pasting. Not to teach any different doctrine. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, here is where 
church people get in some very deep trouble because we have begun to define love in a way different than the Bible defines love. I'm afraid. It's a temptation in me. because It's a temptation for all of us to believe, to presume that we are a little more merciful and a little more understanding than God is. This is what I mean. The reason that we teach what we teach, yes, about same-sex attraction, and the reason that we teach what we teach about cohabitation or just sexual deviancy of any form under the heterosexual banner, the reason that we teach what we teach is ought to be motivated by love. Because we believe that the end of any unrepentant sin is eternity in hell, don't we? And so what that means is that if, if we are defining love the way that the culture defines love, which is just love means acceptance, full stop, whatever you do, and if it feels nice, don't think twice. If we're defining love that way, then we will never share the gospel. This is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we desire to understand the times so that we can apply the gospel to the times. And when we apply the gospel to the times, we pray that the result will be the same thing that happened in the church in Corinth. Look what it says here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11. And such were some of you numbered among the membership of this New Testament church. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you think that people who used to be thieves still get tempted to, to steal? Probably. Probably, if they were known by that, do you think that people who used to be idolaters are still tempted toward idolatry even though they're saved? Absolutely. Do you think that some people who used to be homosexuals are still tempted toward that? Absolutely. Do you think that, that some people who used to swindle or be drunk, the drunkards, they're still tempted, but, but the reality of the New Testament church is our church should be a safe place for anyone who is seeking to run to Christ away from the old man, no matter what that old man looked like. And we will know that we have reached the goal when we are able to say, such were some of us, but we were washed. So here's a, an introduction. Introduction to Christian worldview. One of the great challenges of engaging our culture today is the reality that we are influenced um, by the language that our culture uses. This, this is just a part of life. Yet, 
for Christians, this presents a, a challenge because the language of the culture comes loaded with assumptions and presuppositions and all kinds of philosophy. Here's the danger. To accept the language of the culture is to accept some of the beliefs of the culture. Um, let me see if I can think of, a, of an example. Um, the one that's coming to mind is not, it's not good enough. So it's an example where the language is just completely loaded. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like if somebody asks you, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, well, there's a lot of stuff loaded into that question. The assumption that I ever did beat my wife, right? Or the assumption that if I say, if I say, uh, I, I, you know, I haven't stopped. Oh, you, you continue to beat your wife, right? You know, there's no good way to answer the question when the language is loaded with all kinds of stuff. And this is where Rosaria Butterfield has said, basically, if we're going to be evangelizing, we're all the time having to define terms with people. We're all the time having to, to say, what do you mean when you say that? And then reinterpret the conversation through the lens of the Bible so that we're thinking biblically. Uh, we believe, I believe, I teach that the scriptures provide a sufficient deposit of knowledge to address the issues that we face. To think biblically about our world means to process the ideas of our culture through the grid of scripture, using scripture's categories to shape our thinking. To think biblically about our world is what it means to worship God with our mind. That's the highest thing that a Christian mind can do is to think about our world biblically. So how do we go about this? Well, a couple of ways. The first is to reestablish in our minds a positive vision for, sex, for sexuality that the Bible sets forth. In other words, if we believe that God created us and He created everything and everything was good, then we have a purpose and we would actually have to say that the, that the, that the sexual side of humanity has a good purpose that points to God somehow. And so our first task is to recover that is to uncover that so that we can understand what was it that God was doing in creation when he made us the way that he did. And then secondly, we would have to reframe the culture's vision for sexuality in our minds in biblical terms. In other words, we interpret what the culture is saying, but we do so in the language of Scripture. I want to read to you this passage from Matthew 22 about loving God with our minds. It says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the, first, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So loving God with our minds is an exercise in acting as though we really believe what the Bible says about life. And it becomes the lens through which we view the world. By renewing our minds and understanding the times, we are able to be on guard against inadvertently accepting unbiblical categories. Make no mistake, friends. Here's, here's the deal. 
Every one of us is going to believe something about how the gospel relates to sexuality. The question is, how biblical is what we are believing? How biblical is it what we are believing? Uh, because we have time, I'm going to pivot into this postmodernism and expressive individualism because this is kind of the, the undergirding stuff that we have to talk about in order to understand everything that follows. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you have questions, I'm going to do the best I can to answer questions that come up. Some of them I may not have an answer for. Some I may say, hey, that would be a really good question to bring up during this session that's coming up. But if you have some, think of them, put a mental bookmark there or, or jot them down uh, so that whenever we do bring this to a, uh, to a landing place here in about 10 or 15 minutes, um, that'll be a good, a good thing to end with. So postmodernism and expressive individualism. What is this? I'm using a bunch of big words, a bunch of multisyllabic words. Postmodernism is the era, it's a time, it's a, an era of ideas that we currently live in. Now, most of us, many of us have not fully imbibed all of the ideas of postmodernism, but I'm afraid that they have gotten into our bloodstream a little more than we might like to admit. Let's uh, talk about some of these and, and maybe you'll, you'll see what I mean. Um, this is an age that's marked by suspicion toward big stories. You see the word there, meta-narratives. It's just another way of saying a big story, right? Meta is big, narrative is a story. Uh, so Jean-Francois Lyotard um, was kind of the guy who gave this definition, who said that postmodernism is skepticism toward big stories that seek to explain all of life. What's the problem with that? Well, the Bible is one big meta-narrative that seeks to explain life. It's one big story, right? And so, postmodernism, in one very real way, is on a collision course with the scriptures, with the Christian worldview. Postmodernism also rejects the idea that truth exists outside of us. Postmodernism would say there's no such thing as objective truth. And because of this, the idea of a God who establishes or is truth is, is at odds with this view. There's a problem for Christianity because, as I just said, Christianity, after all, is just one big meta-narrative. It's a way of trying to explain life. Here are postmodernism's claims. Number one, if truth doesn't exist, then all that's left is power. It's very dangerous, right? When you, when you cease to believe in truth and you start to believe that, that the only real thing that's out there is just power. Because of this language, linguistics kind of becomes the new battleground. Language is used as a tool to exert a person's power. Postmodernism has a negative view of big stories because it views those as power plays. It's like that Christianity stuff is not really real. It's just there as a power play to get people in line and to believe a certain set of things. You know, maybe to squeeze money out of them or something like that. Secondly, postmodernism says truth cannot be known. If it's out there, we can't know it. It's very skeptical. Um, this is that they took Nietzsche and Descartes' radical doubt to an extreme to say basically we can't even get at truth. It's inaccessible to us. 
Number three, since truth is hidden from us, all we can do is tell stories. We just tell our truth. There's no longer the truth. There's just your truth and my truth and different truths, plural. This is where you know, expressing my truth becomes so popular. Lived experience becomes a kind of epistemology or way of getting at what is true. It replaces objective truth claims like revelation, even biology and statistics. Um, I, I wrote an article uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, you could have picked up if you had wanted to on your way out um, about uh, how critical theory goes to church. I think was the title of it. And um, it's one of the interesting things about critical theory is that these guys uh, who were part of the Frankfurt School, these German philosophers who immigrated to the U.S. kind of fleeing Nazi Germany and were given faculty jobs in the U.S. during the 1930s, um, they were very suspicious. What's interesting about them, they're suspicious of religion and they're also suspicious of science like biology, because both of them seek to make claims about truth, right? Science seeks to make claims about chromosomes and about what can be observed and, and fact, hard data. They were very skeptical of that. They're also skeptical of religion because religion seeks to make claims about what is morally true. Uh, and so it's, it's so interesting. Anyway, that was just a thought there from the... Um, from the Frankfurt School. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, they say, number three, since truth is hidden from us, all we can do is tell stories. There's no the truth anymore. There's just my truth or your truth. But here's the problem. When we warn a friend that a truck is coming down the street, it's not a, it's not a claim of reality. We're just sharing our perception. Right? I sense that there might be a, a truck coming down the street. We're just telling my story. And it works because it just has survival value. But we would say, like I think, I think all of us in the room would say, no, reality is there. Like reality exists. And our job as a human being is to, is to perceive reality, is to access reality, and then conform our lives around it. Well, postmodernism says you can actually create your own reality. Here's the upshot of this. The Christian view of language would be this. Language is a gift from God that's useful to describe what is true. So we can speak of God, that God is, God is morally perfect, and that language helps us because it, it helps us to describe what is true. God has given us language so we can communicate with one another. Our sin confused that language at Babel, we know that. We use language to give God praise for His creation. We sing. I mean, we're a singing people, right? We're commanded to give God praise for who He is. So language has been given to us as a tool toward acknowledging what is true. But if you believe that there is no truth, then language ceases to be a tool that points to what is true and explains what is true. The postmodern view of language is that you just use language to gain power. Okay? Since nothing objectively true exists, all that's left is just determining who's in charge. 
As a result, language can be flexed kind of at a whim. Reason, here's Frederick Nietzsche. I'm going to quote him. Reason in language, oh, what an old deceptive female she is. I am afraid we are not rid of God because we still have faith in grammar. It's a very interesting quote. Very telling quote. Uh, I tell you what, let's do postmodernism and ethics. Uh, and hopefully we can do justice to that without rushing through it. When objective truth evaporates, all we have is consensus. Like, well, we don't know what's true, so let's just get together and vote, you know, to see what can be true for us as a group. It's just not true out there. In other words, we're not asking, let's take a vote on what color carpet we should get in the church next. We're taking a vote on, like, uh, is it day or night right now? You know, like things that are true, not things that are preferential. Uh, we, we have nothing that is right and wrong. We only have opinions and whatever a society comes to agree on. So because postmodernism has been so successful in eroding confidence that truth even exists, all moral conversations have been pushed into subjectivism. It's just what's good for you, what's good for me. Nobody can really know. There's really no objective truth. It's just true for you and, and what is moral for you and what's moral for me. Here's, uh, here's an example of this. Objective truth would say adultery is wrong, full stop. Because there's an objective lawgiver, and his name is God, and he has given a law. Subjectively, outside of us, whether we're here or not, it's true. Adultery is wrong. Subjective truth would be like, I feel, adult I feel that adultery is bad. But I can't really say why I feel that way. Probably just because I grew up in a family that believed that and in a community that believed that. But who's to say it could be right, could be good, could be virtuous? On the ground, what it looks like is this. You shift away from absolute truth to just agreed upon morality. Cultures come together to decide what is morally right and wrong. Morality is not fixed. Uh, you can imagine a Supreme Court nominee being questioned about their Catholic education and their views on natural law. Natural law is just the belief that right and wrong correspond to how the world is. You might hear a senator remark, right and wrong are what the United States Congress decides. And that was an actual quote. Right and wrong is not outside of us and we need to discover what is right and wrong. We get to decide what is right and wrong. Here's a critique of postmodernism. A couple of very positive things here. A couple of very uh, good things we need to know, because it's not all bad. Postmodernism, it, its critique on the, uh, on the optimism placed in science is frequently on point. And here's why. It's not that science is bad. It's that, it's that sometimes people think that science is the only way to get at truth. Well, there's a whole realm of questions that exist outside of the scientific method. Like you can't do your your you can't do your your test and form your hypothesis and, and test it and it becomes a you know becomes a law eventually on God because he's just he exists outside of the scientific method right and so it's 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 not in the same realm of inquiry so the postmodernists they were right in saying that hey listen science is very good 
at getting at a certain kind of truth. In other words, like, you know, a hacksaw is a good tool, but not for shaving, right? Like, it's a really good tool when you're using it on the right object. Uh, number two, here's the second positive thing. It's true that language is often used to exert power. I mean, my goodness. You can twist language and you can, you can flex it and you can, you can make people believe things. You can make them believe that you're saying something opposite from what you're actually meaning because language can be used to exert power. Um, and so they're right on that. This has happened many times in the history of human beings. Here's the negative things about postmodernism. When you say there's no absolute truth, you've just made an absolute truth claim. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? There is no, there's no objective truth. Oh, are you objectively certain about that? I, you know what I'm saying? So to say there's no truth is to make a truth claim. Next, saying we have no access to truth. Well, how did, you, how did you come to find that out if you have no access to truth? How can you say we have no access to truth, right? You, you just said we don't have any access to truth, and now you're trying to get me to believe it. I'm very suspicious. Saying meta-narratives are bad is to set up your own meta-narrative. Right? Saying, hey, big stories are bad. That's the same as setting up your own big story. And your own big story is just that big stories are bad. You're just moving the wrinkle in the carpet. Right? It's not really solving a problem. Lastly, if each culture gets to decide what is right for them, then what right does one culture have to go to war with another in, say, a 1930s Germany situation? We would just have to say, well, hey, here in America, you know, I mean, killing Jews is not good for us, but maybe it's working for them over there. We would have no moral authority to say that what they are doing is wrong if societies just get to get together and make their own truth. So there's a, just a, a, a brief... Um, oh, here's another one. Furthermore, if individuals are so bad at getting at truth... Why do we place our faith in societies that are just made up of individuals? If individuals can't reach truth, why would societies be any better? Because they're made up of individuals that you've already said can't reach truth. So anyway, I know that a lot of this has been uh, a little tedious and, and high-level stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll get into more of the practical stuff in the next couple of sessions. Uh, let me just make a, make a, a plea to you. Um, because we're running through so much stuff and because we're having to do it so incrementally and I haven't actually probably answered any of the questions that you may have hoped I would address tonight because we're laying so much groundwork. If at any time I confuse you or if at any time you have a question, please just come to me and let's, let's talk about that and ask me that question and I'll do the best that I can.